0: Welcome to Amici, News and Insights from New York Courts. I'm John Carr. Today we have a very special and unusual program in two ways. One, we have both audio and video for this podcast. And two, we have a very special guest, a return guest, and a very historic guest. And that is the Honorable Betty Weinberg Ellerin, the retired presiding justice of the Appellate Division First Department. Judge Elrond is back with us to discuss a, a fascinating new uh, report on gender fairness in the courts, a topic that she knows uh, a little bit about. Uh, Justice Ellerin was the first woman deputy chief administrative judge for the New York City courts and the first woman appointed to the Appellate Division's First Department. She is now senior counsel to the Manhattan law firm of Alston and Bird. Justice, Justice Elrond also chairs the New York State Judicial Committee on Women in the Courts. And that is the focus of our uh, discussion today. But before we do that, um, if I may, I'd I'd like to uh, bring some context to this discussion. Uh, Judge Zeller and all of us in the courts uh, are pretty familiar with uh, who you are and your career and your accomplishments and your contributions. But I'd like to um, peek behind the curtain a little bit if we could and and ask you, uh, where are you from? What's your story? Tell me about your childhood, and and how does all that relate to where uh, where you are today?
1: Okay. Um, I was born in the Bronx of immigrant parents, both of whom came from different parts of Europe. Uh, And we moved to Connecticut. It was the middle of the Depression, and my father got a job in Connecticut at a place called Derby. Uh, that's the Naugatuck Valley, about 10, 12 miles from New Haven. And that was where I grew up until my first year of high school. I went to grammar school there my first year of high school. And uh, that was a very nice place to grow up in that regard, except I'm Jewish and it was a very anti-Semitic area. And that had a great impact upon me. Um, It colored um, my attitude about how I felt about other minorities. Uh, Because I was in that context, a minority, and I felt um, the prejudice uh, the nasty comments, what have you. But in any event, um, we moved to New York when I was going into my second year of high school, which was the right time, because all the other kids were going into high school from junior high. And I went to a school called James Monroe in the Bronx. We returned to the Bronx, and uh, that was a school of, oh, well over 600 uh, students, and um, I graduated as valedictorian, which was, uh, you know, very nice, and should have really given me an open ticket to many schools. My family didn't have much money, um, unfortunately, but also I graduated in 1946, That was the year that World War II ended. And so all the veterans were returning, but I wanted to go out of town uh, to school. That was a dream of mine. And when we were in Connecticut, my parents had friends who had children who went to schools like Ohio, Indiana, et cetera. And I had no guidance, but I sent letters to those schools and I got a scholarship to Indiana University. Uh, So I went out there Gorgeous, gorgeous campus. That was the first week. I loved it. Second week, I found out it was Klan territory. Well, that didn't sit too well with me. And I was constantly marching. And after a year, I got out of town, out of my system, came back to New York, uh, got a a partial scholarship at NYU, uh, which was uh, a school I was happy to attend for a couple of reasons. One, I was delighted to be in the city atmosphere with the uh, excitement, the political dynamism and what have you. And it was a place where I could get two degrees in six years, the first year of at Indiana counting, and I took extra courses, and I did. I got a B.A. and an L.L.B. Um, and for me, the extra years tuition was important because I had worked my way through school, worked in the summers, I worked at uh, you know various jobs uh, during the year. Um, then I graduated from law school, and. Um, NYU did not have a particularly great placement uh, service. I must say this about NYU. For the most part, it was a friendlier atmosphere for women students than many of the other law schools. Um, NYU was ahead of the curve in that regard. And um, I never felt out of place there. If I had a couple of incidents with some of the young men, um, I had a lot of moxie. I remember early on, one of the guys came over and said, what are you here for, to get a husband? Now, I expected that question. So I said, well, to tell you the truth, yeah, that was why I came. But, you know, when I saw what was available, thought I'd get the degree instead. Well, I'll tell you, (laughs) nobody ever bothered me again. And I had a group, you know, a study group of all uh, young men who remained friends many, many years. Uh, so uh, law school was, um, I viewed it as uh, a, a, uh, something I had to do in order to become a lawyer, something I had wanted from the time I was about 12 years old, because I wanted to be a labor lawyer, I was going to help people. In any event, when I got out of law school and went looking for a job, the fact that I was a woman suddenly uh, became very evident. Uh, I went on a lot of job interviews, things that I don't think would, I, I know wouldn't happen today. Uh, I, you know, go into an office, well, we can't hire you, the clients wouldn't like it, or those who didn't use that line, ah, oh, you know, you'll get married and have children. And I used to say to myself, I wish i would tell that to my mother, who was very concerned when I went to school, that that might not happen, although it didn't. I had three wonderful children. In any event, I ultimately got a job because I was a woman with a maritime firm. Uh, The person who interviewed me was pretty young guy and he thought it would be very um helpful to have a woman in the firm and when he went in to tell the senior partner that there was somebody he wanted him uh, to interview i heard the scream a woman are you crazy in any event uh two years thereafter when i told that partner i was leaving no you can't leave i'm building a department around you and i was helpful i was able to do things uh, in the firm or uh, in terms of investigating things, in terms of dealing with the semen, uh, that um, were, were very helpful. Uh, the seamen treated me like a lady. And so I could, you know, tell them, well, look, this is, you know, when we get a settlement, this is your share, this is the firm's share, they were like lambs when one of the partners or one of the other men would do it, you'd hear screams. So I was helpful and it was a wonderful body of law because I was in the federal courts a lot. Now in the federal courts, um, I would, uh, and this was true in most courts, when you'd come in as a young woman in those days, and I don't think it's any secret about how old I am, I'm 91, so you can imagine how many years ago that was, Uh, The first question um, the nice judges would ask was, are you a lawyer? And I say, yes, Your Honor, I am. And that would be it. The not so nice ones would start out with, you know, we don't allow secretaries to answer the calendar or whatever it is. And then I'd have to explain that I was a lawyer. Now, that really was not very nice. But it was something that we accepted, the few of us who were in the profession at that time. Um, as time went on, I had the opportunity to become a law clerk to a judge in a court that no longer exists. It was called the City Court of the City of New York. Now, this judge, was um, his name was Harry Frank, was an, a sort of avant-garde guy. He liked the idea of being different. And the fact that I was a woman um, was something that he liked because he would be, most of the other uh, judges, actually all of them, had men law clerks. So when he interviewed me, uh, he looked at my resume. Oh, do you want me to swear you in now or do you want to wait for your uh, parents and uh, husband? I said, no, no, I have to give my firm, uh, you know, notice. So he said, tell you what, because uh, there were some political overtones to it. Uh, I'll swear you in now and I'll give you two weeks to clear it up with the office. And that uh, began my career in the court system. That was a court uh, that had jurisdiction up to $6,000 in civil um, cases, but it also had unlimited jurisdiction in maritime cases. So that was a natural fit. And I remember the very first case that I had in that court. Uh, that uh, He was t- hearing a maritime case. And he said to me, come upstairs and um, I want you to sit in the courtroom. And I'm upstairs and a um, witness is on the stand, a first mate. And he's talking about, and the rope, and the rope, and he's making these motions and nobody can get the word out of him, so I raised my hand. I said, Judge, I think he's talking about kinks in the rope. Well, the place broke up because of all of these, uh, you know, guys who were maritime lawyers. Look who knew what uh, the guy was talking about. And I wrote some um, under his name, uh, some very interesting decisions, some in the maritime field and some in other areas. And I'm going to be very honest. Being a woman was helpful. They expected so little from a woman lawyer that if a woman was competent, if a woman was good, she was brilliant. She was exceptional. And that used to be the word, oh, Harry Frank's got this exceptional you know, law clerk. Uh, and by the way, we were called law secretaries in those days, notwithstanding that I was the only woman, but law secretaries. And as years went by and I... Um, We were in the Supreme Court. I remember I would get um, calls from lawyers. Um, I would like to speak to the judge's law secretary. And I'd say, this is the judge's law secretary. No, no, the law secretary. I'd said, no, counsel, this is judge's law. No, I mean the man. I say, counsel, women have been admitted to the bar of the state of New York since 1869. This is the judge's law secretary, can I help you? But that was the kind of thing, uh, you know, I didn't have much problem with the lawyers, though. Uh, They were smart enough to know that uh, the judge's law secretary or law clerk, if you wish, pretty important person in chambers, and they all acted for the most part with great respect.
0: That's good, That's good to hear. Now let, let now, me, let, let me uh, take a, a step back uh, for a moment. Sure. Uh, I'd like to go back uh, kind of a long yeah. way. Um, you were a uh, a young woman. You may have already may have even been an attorney by that point when uh, Brown v. Board of Education was uh, decided. But your your activism, your caring about these sort of issues, your experiences as a child experiencing anti-Semitism. Um, I'd like to explore that. What, what, were, what were your thoughts at the time? What was going through your well, head? Are you aware of all this?
1: Let me put it this way. I started marching when I was 16 years old. I was very active in high school clubs. When I got to college, I became president of the NYU Democratic Club. I was always marching against injustice, including racial injustice, at Indiana. Uh, That was what soured me on Indiana. There was a conference on racial equality. And every restaurant in town put up a sign, we cater to white trade. Well, it was good for my diet, but I never stepped into another restaurant in that town. And that was what decided me, no way am I staying here. They can keep the rolling beautiful hills and beautiful buildings. This is not for me. And uh, I was I was marching uh, there as well uh, for, you know, I think the um, African-American, although they were called at that time, you know, the black fraternity sororities were not. And I was not a sorority person, but they were not eligible to be part of the group. And uh, I marched against that. Whenever there was an issue like that, I was marching. Actually, once at NYU, I was marching and I'm handing out a leaflet and my professor, Lois McDonald, a labor law professor, she was wonderful, uh, passes by and I I don't see who I'm getting. And I hand out the leaflet and she looks at me and says, oh, Miss Weinberg, good to know where you are because I missed you in class today. But, you know, I was an activist even then.
0: Did that uh, come back to bite you in any way did that uh
1: um... no. no, not that i I have always been very outspoken about those kinds of issues
0: and that outspokenness really comes from your own experiences, right?
1: Yes, and because I think it's the right thing to do. I wanted to be a labor lawyer because my father, you know had been a union uh, person when he was um younger. And I wanted to help working people achieve, you know, proper status. Trouble is the uh, lawyers who represented unions were not waiting with open arms for me. And it was a different uh, sort of uh, atmosphere. By the time I graduated from law school, I had an idealized version, you know, of what union war would be like.
0: Sure. Sure. Now in 1986, the New York State task force on women in the courts issued a uh, report concluding that gender bias um, was pervasive, a pervasive problem in the courts and that That's women right. were frequently denied uh, equal justice, equal treatment and equal opportunity. Um, now your, your committee revisited that issue, uh, I don't know, 34 years later and issued a report and was it late November, I think? Um, Correct. Showing that there has been progress, but uh, we have yep. not yet reached the promised land of equality. courts. Is that, is that accurate? First,
1: let me tell you how the first report came into being. Um, at that time, I was a city administrative judge and had great uh, rapport with uh, then Chief Judge uh, Lawrence Cook. He came from Monticello, but he was truly a man committed to justice. And um, there had there were writings at that time about the fact that women were not being treated properly within our court system. And uh, New Jersey had done a report and a group of um, activist women um, you know, contacted me and I said, yeah, we're going to go and talk to the chief judge. And we did, and we spoke to them and told them we thought we needed that kind of a task force too, to explore whether there was bias, notwithstanding that we knew that in fact there was. um, But you needed uh, to support that with data, Uh, so. He was a little taken aback because he was such a fair person himself. He thought that, you know, was sort of a criticism of him. But um, after I spoke to him, I got a call the next day, judge, I listened to what you said and we're going to have that task force. And he was wonderful. He appointed a task force uh, that included people uh, from the big firms, legislators, Um, educators, what have you, actually very few uh, of what you would call uh, people committed to gender equality. I was a little disappointed, but he was much smarter than I, because those people, when they are converts, believe me, they go all the way and they have an impact um, far beyond what those who are known to be, you know, uh, sort of prejudiced in an area uh, can have. And they came out after hearings, after meetings, what have you, with a report that, as you say, said that gender uh, bias infected all areas of our court system. And one of the recommendations was the appointment of a permanent committee to follow the progress Uh, We that report had a lot of recommendations. By the way, I was not a member of that uh, task force. Had a lot of recommendations as to how to address the incidents of bias that pervaded the court system. And uh, it said there should be a committee to oversee the implementation of those recommendations. Now, the chief judge to whom the report um, was given, because there had been a change, Judge Cook had to retire, was Saul Wachtler, And he took it very seriously. His Law Day program, right after the report was presented to him, was on that uh, issue, that he was committed to seeing that those recommendations were fulfilled, and he did establish the committee. I think it was called um, the Committee to Implement the Recommendations of the Task Force on Women in the Courts. That was quite a mouthful. Uh, Ultimately, uh, I think it was Judge Kaye who changed it to uh, the New York State Committee on Women in the Courts. And the first uh, chair of that committee was the Honorable Catherine McDonald, the Administrative Judge of the Family Court. As I uh, said in the report, in the current report, that was an inspired choice. She was fabulous. And she um, came up with the idea that, you know, no one statewide committee can really have eyes and ears everywhere. And that you really need input from the localities, what's going on in the various districts. And so she was the one who initiated uh, the local committees. We have a local gender fairness committee in every one of the judicial districts within the state. And in a sense, they are the eyes and ears. And we have an annual conference that, co- uh, that in a sense, compiles all of what we hear from around the state, and we try to incorporate it in what our, you know, focus is for the following years. Now, at one of those annual meetings, oh, about? Three years ago, I think, when it was about 30 years after the original report, I don't know. We had a whole big discussion at the annual meeting. These are problems that still exist, etc. So, mindful of um, how we approached, how it was approached originally, we realized just talking about it in that abstract way did not have the same impact as if you have concrete data to back up the, you know, the uh, problems that you are complaining about. So we decided, um, well, you know, I guess it's time maybe for another task force uh, or for another report. And uh, as usual in the court system, money was very scarce. But this is one time, I'm not a big technology lover, as everybody who knows me knows. But I appreciate that in this instance, technology was very helpful. While we couldn't have the meetings and the, you know, the impressive um, investigatory um, efforts that the original task force engaged in, we could send out a, a questionnaire to every lawyer in the state of New York. Because don't forget, we're the uh, Committee on Gender Fairness in the Court System. And so what we did, uh, we did prepare a questionnaire that in many ways was similar to the original one. And uh, a copy of that, see originally we had a que- the questionnaire, was done through bar associations. And that was sort of, you know, uh, catch as catch c- can. It was a combination of all sorts of uh, information gathering. But here we sent out the report to every lawyer in the state of New York who gave an email address. And we got back, um, oh, well over 5,000, uh, close to 6,000, um, responses, which is a pretty terrific number. And that gives you a really pretty accurate assessment of what the problems are. And, um, Now, do you want me to talk about what we got back? Do you have any specific areas you want to address to me, John?
0: Well, just in a general sense, what were the major findings? Uh, What did you you learn?
1: Okay, let me start with the good news. Thank you. Okay, Uh, I like to do that. Um, When the original task force report was issued, Women judges throughout the state were few and far between. Um, Which was very unfortunate, the fact that when I was appointed to the appellate division in 1985, in the first department, that's um, covers um, Manhattan, the Bronx. Probably more women lawyers in that area than anywhere in the country. I was the first and only one in that court for 11 years. That's pretty sad when you think about it. The report, the first report, was issued in 1986. Well, and um, there had. Um, Yeah, Judge Kaye was on the Court of Appeals, but other appellate courts were pretty barren in terms of any women members. And women judges throughout the state, particularly outside of the city, were few and far between. In the city, the family court had quite a few. Well, fast forward to the second report, 30 years later, the number of women judges is astounding. We have had periods where the Court of Appeals, our highest court, has had a majority of women. The court where I was alone for 11 years, today is a a strong majority women. The second department has women, and even the third and fourth, which are outside of the city, have uh, multiple women. And there's a woman PJ in the third department, All of this, believe me, 30 years ago, I would not have believed it were possible. And to me, even more important, uh, at the local levels, you have uh, women administrative judges. And in the non-judicial sector, you know, we have court officers, court clerks. Listen, when I came into the system, they were pretty uniformly men. Once in a while, there'd be a woman. Hey! Today, many, many of them are in leadership positions, and I think that has been terrific. And that was reflected in many of the answers that we got, I think. First of all, what is the atmosphere in the court system um, to women lawyers, women litigants, women witnesses? Well, Women lawyers today, um, all uh, the, the data indicates, as far as judges are concerned, judges do not demonstrate bias against women lawyers. And court personnel have improved in that regard markedly. Unfortunately, Other lawyers, and I guess that's for the most part, men lawyers, do show bias toward women uh, lawyers and to women witnesses and and litigants. And that's a very, um, almost to the same extent that they did 30 years ago. And that's very distressing to us. I must say that. Also, Credibility, after all, what uh, when you go to court for a case, credibility is critical. Now, the report indicated, you know, from the data, women lawyers and litigants and witnesses are given less credibility by judges in a lesser degree, but Lawyers really take advantage in that area, and that's terrible. Uh, that's something that we really because that interferes with um, a just result. That you ta- you take two witnesses, one is a man, uh, you know, expert witness, the other is a woman, and you automatically give her less. Now, I'm not saying that. It is a majority, an overwhelming majority, but it is sufficiently concerning that we have to be aware of it and seek to eliminate it. Now, when we talk about, when I said to you, judges were not, um, I I hate to use the word guilty, but judges uh, didn't engage in uh, untoward conduct, toward women lawyers, litigants, et cetera. But the one area that we fault judges uh, on is that if they see it happening by lawyers or by others, they don't necessarily intercede. And they do, have, they control the courtroom. They have an obligation to intercede, both in the courtroom and, frankly, within the profession itself. After all, judges are the leaders of our system of justice, and they have to set the pattern. Uh, There are also other areas where there have been improvements. For example, in terms uh, of um, the issuance of orders of protection, uh, you know, where women, and in most cases it is women, um, are the victims of domestic violence. There has been a big improvement on that, Um, in terms of how the police address it and how it's addressed generally. One of the things that's of great concern there is that the courthouse does not have safe spaces for those victims on the first return. And, you know, this goes, of course, to uh, the whole issue of um, financial stability of uh, our entire system. We're at a terrible crisis now, I don't have to tell you uh, financially. And uh, while there are, it it depends on the courthouses within the city of New York, some of the um, institutional, uh, you know, domestic violence uh, groups do have some safe spaces. Overall, uh, when a woman comes back on the initial, um, you know, order of protection date, um, there are not safe spaces and that can be uh, very dangerous. And uh, we make big uh, a lot of recommendations about posting information in courthouses, one, as to where to report incidents of um, Discrimination or if, uh, abuse or uh, maltreatment, and that's important. Uh, the public has to be aware if something's wrong, there's got to be a way to report it and report it easily. And we've made very specific recommendations and uh, we're now in the process uh, under the aegis of Judge um, Richardson Mendelson of trying to implement many of those uh, reservations. An area to me of particular concern is the um, support provisions upon termination of marriage. Uh, Some legislation has been passed over the course of the years that in my view, uh, and the view of several um, judges and others, does not properly take into account the length of a marriage and the realities of um, the ability of a woman who's been out of the workforce for many years to in fact be able to obtain appropriate employment. And the statute is not very um, sensitive to that, nor does the statute um, both as to equitable distribution or support, give appropriate emphasis to the value of work that has has been traditionally considered women's work. You know, the tort lawyers in New York City, pretty smart guys and women, and they know how to lay out what it costs to do all of the tasks that an ordinary homemaker does, or a caretaker does, they can assess an economic value to it. But that's in their tort cases, a limited number of cases. That has not been accepted system-wide. And it's not reflected in support awards or an equitable distribution, or when a woman is injured. If he's you- She doesn't get the right lawyer. um, Juries don't look upon that kind of work as uh, appropriately either in terms of its economic value. These are just a few of the issues. Listen, I could sit here for a couple of hours and talk about this report. I don't think that's what you have in mind. Uh, But let me just sort of say this. We've come quite a way. Not far enough. We still have a way to go. And um, we are not giving up. We believe in a truly fair and equitable system of justice at every level. And that means women are entitled to that same standard as are their counterparts.
0: One of the parts of the report that intrigued me is... uh, One, you're you're calling for uh, more human trafficking courts. And, uh, you know, I think it was a a dozen years ago or so, New York enacted what is supposed to be maybe the strongest anti-trafficking law in the nation. And it seems looking at the numbers from the Division of Criminal Justice Services that that may have fired blanks. I mean, in 13 years, we've had a grand total statewide of 127 convictions For sex trafficking, 103 of them in New York City. So, you know, roughly 10 a year. So either we don't have a problem or we're not really addressing it. Oh, Um,
1: believe me, you have a problem. (laughs) Listen, I have always said uh, every pimp is a trafficker. Let's be honest. That's what we're talking about. And uh, that's uh, obviously a very uh, complicated area. I sat in criminal court. And um, I'm going to tell a tale out of school. When I would get a pimp in front of me, I was considered a pretty liberal judge. I didn't throw people in jail unnecessarily. Legal aid used to love to appear before me. Let's put it that way. However, when I would get a pimp in front of me, listen, I didn't count 180, 80. I didn't count Saturdays. I didn't count Sundays, Mondays. I would put those guys in. The problem was, you know, they have such control over the poor women that they traffic. You can't get much out of them. But I used to say, let those some, pardon me, let those terrible people know what it's like to be back there, because the prostitutes were incarcerated. And I was always big on having services, you know, uh, for prostitutes to try to get them out of uh, that life wherever possible. It's a, a terrible problem. And part of the problem, we've had many meetings of our committee where we've had uh, members of GA staffs, and I got to give many of them credit. They're really, those who do that kind of work, are really committed. And, but they are confronted with the difficulty of getting witnesses. Hey, listen, we have a due process system. And that, in a sense, is one of the prices you pay. You do have to have evidence. And if you can't get evidence, unfortunately, but they try to use many creative ways. Also, we don't have Uh, the trafficking courts throughout the state. Uh, I was a big proponent of that under our last chief uh, judge, and he started, you know, a a couple of them. But again, economics interferes. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like one of the less, uh, I guess, exciting parts of the report, you might call it, are the facilities portion. You know, um, many years ago, um there was a committee started, I think by Judge Kay, um on women and children. And it was uh, Ellen Shaw was one of the co-chairs. Now, I knew her from the courtroom. She used to appear before me when I sat in a criminal. So she called me up. Do you have any ideas? And I suggested, you know, what's terrible is many of the low-income people have children. Listen. A woman can't afford to hire a babysitter so she can lose her apartment because she can't answer a call in uh, the housing court. Many of them have to visit, you know, want to visit the uh, mates in the criminal court. We got to have waiting rooms or nurseries. I think I called them nurseries at that time. Oh, she says, that's a great idea, she wrote it down. And they... Um, She's now at NYU where I'm a trustee associate. Anyhow, um, um, that did take root. And we did start, uh, they were started in many areas. For example, Suffolk County had one of the best. Would you believe that? Really terrific. And we had one in New York County at 111 Center Street. That's the civil court uh, building. And uh, we were doing pretty good on all of these. They were uh, expanding hours, what have you, and they served a wonderful purpose. Uh, you could let, The family courts still have them, by the way, in every family court. And there, they're obviously very critical. But the litigants could come in, leave the children at these nurseries or waiting rooms, as you will, and they could go off to the various parts. Then came 2007 with the recession. uh, They had a big article in The Times yesterday about it. And of course, bingo, uh, the hours were reduced. Uh, I remember the then chief administrator was someone who was very committed to it, Judge Fowle. And I remember meeting with her with the president of the state women's bar, and she made a commitment when the budget you know allows, that will be one of the first things we'll do. Unfortunately, that has not come to pass because of the budgetary restraints. But that's an important issue, and we're trying to find way, creative ways. Uh, to perhaps incorporate um, community involvement. uh, Do you know what I mean? So that those, uh, okay. Then another thing, in my time, the thought that you would want a lactation room, you know, for a new mother? I I didn't even think about that. And I had three kids during the time I was a law clerk. But, okay, hey. Today, a lot of women lawyers and women judges as well and women court personnel are new mothers and they are entitled. Uh, you know, they want to continue with their careers to work. All they need is a lactation space because more and more there's natural breastfeeding. And in New York City, there are many for the uh, a good number outside of the city, lacking. And the irony is that's also something that a little money could uh, provide. They have what are called pods that would be uh, okay for that. But that's something we're pushing. I want you to know. And another uh, thing that may sound amusing, baby changing tables. Listen, you go into some of these courts and you see a a baby being changed in the, on the bench outside of the courtroom now that's not really good for the baby for the parent etc every bathroom male and female should have a baby changing table and of course we don't the court system i still say we you know in my heart i'm still <laughs> there don't own uh, the buildings in which we operate and so we are sort of uh, subject to uh, the whims and what have you of those who do. And again, money becomes a predominant factor. But that to me, pretty easy to win, certainly in new buildings is no excuse. But to put in a baby changing table in a bathroom, I think that's manageable.
0: It sounds like uh, you have a mix of recommendations, some which I would say, some of which I would say are, quite easy to achieve. Um, some which require uh, legislative changes, which are a lot harder to yes, achieve. I have, uh, and I some we that require uh, some uh, financial commitment, which in the middle of a pandemic may be difficult to achieve, but otherwise I don't think we're talking a whole lot of money. Is that correct?
1: Well, it depends on who you talk to. Talk to me. Listen, it's not too much because what you're seeking to correct is so egregious that whatever that amount is, it's critical. Listen, one of my pets is supervised visitation. I was a member of the Moreland Commission before it was disbanded. And I remember we were having a talk and somebody raised supervised visitation. And one of the um, DAs from upstate said to me, well, the court provides that, Uh, don't they? I said, no, unfortunately, they don't. Um, And he looked very shocked, like, yeah, that's something the court should provide. And it should. But, you know, that becomes a big thing of supervised visitation. There are um, entities you have to pay uh, if there's no fam- appropriate family member available. It's a very complicated thing, but again, there's money. And when you put together all of the little, you know, the money pockets, um, it, especially in today's uh, climate, is that we're going to have to come up with some creative ways. We may have to have cake sales.
0: <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Judge okay, You you've been promoting equal rights for uh, 75 years, and I don't get any indication you intend to slow down.
1: I hope not. I'll keep trying.